Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The Chancellor of the Exchequer. Getting a lesson from the Shadow Chancellor on how to balance the books is like getting a lesson from Dracula on how to look after a blood bank. Ed a steady as she goes budget. What kind of ship does he think he's on? The Titanic? The Marie Celeste? Welcome to EMQs from Political Currency with Ed Balls and George Osborne. So, welcome to EMQs, ex ministers' questions. Our episode dedicated to all the fantastic questions you've put to George and me throughout the week. Yeah, you are making our lives quite difficult because we are getting so many questions and so many good questions. Although I'm going to start with my own question. I saw this headline in The Guardian, Ed. It says, Ed Balls kicks Susanna Reid in the head on Good Morning Britain. I know. <laughs> I mean, what on earth? Went? I, I, I missed this uh, Eric Cantona moment. Well, it's interesting you say Eric Cantona. It, wa- it was a moment. And because Susanna Reid is a Crystal Palace fan, Eric Cantona famously jumped into the crowd and kicked a Crystal Palace fan. So that might be the, the illusion there. No, it was an error. We were demonstrating. We had in two lines of airline seats and we were showing what happens if um, somebody sits in the seat behind you and puts their feet up on the headrest mm. behind you. And I decided we should go and demonstrate this. And so me and Andrew Pierce, Kevin Maguire and Susanna all walk over. And it was quite high. And I swung my leg up to get it up onto the top of the seat and Susanna Reid was sitting in front of me, mm. and I succeeded. And foolishly, I decided to double down and put the other leg up. And as I swung the other leg up, like a billiard ball, it collided through my foot into Susanna Reid's head. Oh, 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 you just caught her I'm head. Sorry, I'm sorry. I Are think, you okay? I think we've decided it's not okay. Oh, get, there we go. Get, no. I've got a good lawyer for you. <laughs> so I did kick her in the head live on television, and there was this fleeting moment where I thought, what have I done? I mean, this is like complete catastrophe. I was mortified. Mm. Only well, I mean, no, actually, I mean, I, th- I think I think I'm still in trauma. <laughs> there was then this um, speculation, you know, if there was a VAR check, a la Eric Cantona, you know, was there contact? Was this a dive? And mm. therefore, should she be the one who gets the red card? And I would just like to clear this up. There was contact and uh, it was not a dive. She had every right to go down. Mm. But luckily, like a great player, she got up and carried on and scored the goal. So she wasn't thrown off course she carried on and she was absolutely fabulous and i was mortified but anyway yes so i kicked susanna reed in the head live on television there we are all right well, well that, that's my question answered <laughs> anyway let's, oh my God. let's go on the, let's go we, on to the we, listeners we to. yes so we discussed last week didn't we that we both said uh in passing that the tuition fee system is quite akin to a graduate tax and that prompted quite a few people to get in touch with us to ask us 
what we meant by that. And uh, this is what one listener, this is what Joe has said to us. Huge fan of the podcast. Keep up the good work. I want to point out that a graduate tax and the current system are not the same thing as currently there are many students whose parents will pay the entirety of their university costs, meaning that they never make a personal contribution towards the higher education system. And they also avoid the huge debt that less privileged students are forced to assume for the same education. I think Joe is right about this. Of course, some people just opt out of the tuition fee system altogether and they pay their fees up front. So that's not like a tax, which you can't avoid by just sort of paying up front. But I think what I was meant by this is if you're in the tuition fee system, and the vast majority of students are in the tuition fee system, even if they come from well-off backgrounds, essentially they only pay those fees back if, uh, I looked at this, you're earning over £27,500, a reasonably high salary for someone who's young and uh, just left university. And the more you earn, essentially, the more you have to pay back and the higher the rates of interest are as well. So it, it is kind of somewhat progressive and it's somewhat like a tax and it's entirely linked to the fact you're a graduate. And when we looked at trying to create a graduate tax, which I put a lot of effort into and the Treasury put a lot of effort into, it was quite hard to replicate what we've got already and to make it as effective. And there was a basic problem of, of you know how you define a graduate, how you track graduates throughout the, their entire lives. You know, you have to follow people potentially for 60, 70 years. And so I would say what we've got is a pretty progressive system where, by the way, half of all students never end up paying off their student debts because they never earn enough to do so. So the, Joe is right. Some people opt out of it altogether. That's not like a tax. But if you're in the system, it's pretty similar to a graduate tax. I've always worried that for some people, being told to take out a big loan, which you then is a burden you have to repay, might be for some people, especially people who, who come from families where nobody has been to university, could be a, a deterrence. Whereas if you know you're only going to pay back if you've got a job and you're earning, like a tax, that is less of a deterrence. And so... Um, that's why I think it's more like a graduate tax. But, you know, it's not a graduate tax. Joe's right. Thank you for pointing that out. Right. We also have a follow-up question from our Inside the Room special um, about the coalition talks. And this is a question which came from Harvey. Hi, Ed and George. Enjoyed the Inside the Room episodes, but it got me wondering what would have happened had a major incident taken place during these talks. Firstly, had a terrorist attack taken place, who would have chaired the COBRA meetings? Would it have been the then Prime Minister or would it have been the person whose party won the election? And would they have talks between the two parties, the Liberal Democrats, Tories, Labour, etc., taken place quicker, or would they have gone on at the same pace? Secondly, had a major pandemic taken place and broken out, would the health secretary be someone from one of their ruling parties or one of the parties that won the election? Many thanks, Harvey. So, of course, I mean, there was an incident happening during that weekend, the European negotiations about bailing out Greece. Alistair Darling was the Chancellor. George was potentially about to become the Chancellor. And there were conversations about that over that weekend? Yeah, Alistair phoned me on the Sunday and said, look, you know, I didn't expect to still be the Chancellor. He actually told me he didn't expect to be the Chancellor for very much longer. And he, you know, he thought, however, there can only be one Chancellor, is how he put it. And I've got to make a decision, and my decision is to support uh, the Greek bailout. And I'm letting you know that. And what I said to him is, I actually agreed with him. I said, look, 
you've got to make the decision. You're there. You're in Brussels. I'm not the chancellor yet. The one thing I said was, please don't commit us to anything that's going to be long-term and enduring, you know, because I don't think that's right. And it, there are rules around governments in election periods, although this is a post-election period, not making long-term commitments. So there is only ever one government. If there's, to answer the question directly, if there was a terrorist attack or some terrible health incident or whatever, you know, the prime minister at that moment would make those decisions. The one constraint, as I say, would be, uh, I think the civil service would have strongly advised the government against making any kind of long-term commitments and in fact probably prevent them doing so. And of course, parliament's not sitting, so you can't actually pass any kind of enduring legislation you would have to wait for the new government to be able to do that. This goes back, though, I think, to something I said at the end of that that programme, which is I think we could codify this and be clearer. Because at the moment, the answer is we got through that incident with Greece. And if there was a terrorist attack, you would find a way through and there would be consultation. It would be different to a normal time uh, in terms of the prime minister's ability to make decisions without reference to the prime minister in waiting. But this is all kind of not set out. and. If you take the American example, there are very clear rules for what happens between the election date and the inauguration. And the president who is outgoing is not allowed to make any new departures in foreign policy. And there is lots of ways in which the consultation occurs. I think that if I was the cabinet secretary or the um, party leaders, I would think we could write this down and be clearer about how we handle these situations, not least to allow the sitting prime minister to have legitimacy during the transition while those coalition talks are going on. So it worked in 2010, but it could be done better, is my view, Harvey. And I think we agreed probably coalition talks would take longer now than they did then because people have sort of know much more about how these talks unfold. Either that or Rishi Sunak walks out straight away and there's no coalition talks at all, which Gordon Brown could have done in 2010 because he thinks, you know, this is all awful and it's damaging and I'm getting out. In which case, um, you know, unless he's stopped from doing that by procedure, that could happen again. So it could go either way, actually. That's a very good point. Right. Now, on to the next question. If you haven't figured it out, EMQs takes its inspiration from PMQs, Prime Minister's Questions. And uh, that happens every week in the House of Commons. And our next question is from Rob. Hi, guys. My question is, how does PMQs really work? Can an MP ask any question? Is the Prime Minister brief beforehand? I think whether you like all over Prime Minister, it's impressive how they are able to think on their feet so quickly and speak so confidently. Thanks. I stood in for David Cameron a couple of times at Prime Minister's Questions, and I have to say it was the single hardest thing I did as a politician. It was a lot harder than delivering a budget. I delivered eight budgets, but I have to say the, I then ended up doing PMQs because I became first Secretary of State, effectively a sort of deputy, and it's technically really difficult for the Prime Minister. And specifically to your question, a Prime Minister basically knows half the questions because it is normal courtesy. It doesn't always happen. But usually, we've got a Conservative Prime Minister at the moment, Conservative MPs will tell Number 10 in advance what they want to ask. Now, Number 10 will try and persuade them to ask some helpful questions and will have some suggested questions if they don't have questions of their own. That doesn't always happen. And sometimes the hardest questions in PMQs are difficult ones from your own side. But normally, a Prime Minister knows what they are, whereas you don't know what the Labour questions are going to be at all. And you don't know what the questions from the leader of the opposition are going to be. And those are the ones that you spend most time 
preparing for. I, I spent a lot of my life in politics actually playing Tony Blair in the uh, preparations for helping various Tory leaders, both in government and outside government, anticipating how Tony Blair would answer particular questions and uh, role-playing. I used to even do a bit of a Tony Blair voice. There you go. bit of Estuary English. Go on, then. Well, Ed, I'm not going to start doing my uh, Tony Blair impression live on this. Uh, Come on, Tony. Just tell us. Just tell us the truth. <laughs> But anyway, it's, it's bloody difficult to do PMQs, is the short. Having actually done it myself a couple of times, really difficult. The actual fact is that every, I think this is still the case, it was certainly in our time, that the backbench questions ask for the Prime Minister's engagements that day, and then they ask a supplementary where they ask about anything. So when you um, hear the Prime Minister keep saying, you know, I refer the Honourable Member to the answer I gave a moment ago, that is answering the first question about their engagements so that they can ask anything. And the Prime Minister genuinely doesn't. However, I think if you observe Prime Minister's questions, sometimes you can see the Prime Minister with his big file searching to find the relevant kind of brief. And sometimes you see that they already kind of know what the question is going to be. So they're already there and prepared. And in their file, they've got attack lines and responses all sorted out. And sometimes I think that is just because it's obvious what the question is going to be. But sometimes it's because, you know, there is chat and talk. And I think it's always dangerous if you are the leader of the opposition to have too many people in your office talking to people, talking to the whips, talking to the backbenchers, because you don't want things to get back to the Prime Minister, as to what the question is going to be, because it's much harder if they are not prepared. And some of the best Prime Ministerial moments are when you are able to ask a question which is totally unexpected. Tony Blair was always really good at saying, you know, I don't know the answer to that, I'll get back to you. Gordon, because he'd been Chancellor for years, always wanted to answer the question. If you remember the very first David Cameron PMQs, he asked surprisingly and out of the blue a question to Gordon Brown as to why the terrorist organisation Hitzbacteria had not been uh, prescribed, had not been kind of, kind of outlawed. And Gordon didn't know the answer to that question, but didn't say he didn't know the answer to that question, and he got off on the um, back foot. And it's an irony. Last week at PMQs, we had um, an announcement that Hitzbacteria is finally 14 years later, or how many years later it is, being prescribed <laughs> so that Rishi Sunak could then attack Keir Starmer at PMQs for being a lawyer who had advised Hitzbacteria. So, but do you remember that very first PMQs? Yes, I do. And I'm very specifically, we thought, we're not going to ask him an economic question because he's been Chancellor for 10 years. He's going to have an answer on that. And of course, Chancellors answer questions in the House of Commons as well. And, you know, and Chancellors are used to covering a large range of subjects. So it was like, let's ask him a domestic thing. Let's ask him about security, which won't be something he would have necessarily covered as Chancellor. Uh, let's ask a question he won't have anticipated. And, you know, William Hague used to describe it as, you, if you're the leader of the opposition, you've got to get your first serve in, like tennis. You know, because actually most of the advantage lies with the prime minister. For a start, they've got the bigger audience. They've got more MPs in the chamber, by definition. And they have the last word. So it's so important. The leader of the opposition has two advantages. Surprise, they get to pick the topic. Uh, and they go first. And they've got to they've got to kind of get the prime minister on the back foot. Anyway, very good. We, we, we must come back to primary questions because um, I know probably the people listening to it think it's a ridiculous circus, but uh, we loved it, didn't we, Ed? We, uh, we enjoyed it. We loved, to, you know, having a go at each other a bit across the dispatch box. Well, we had a go at each other in Treasury questions, but in Primus' questions, we had a conversation about the inadequacies of um, 
David Cameron from my side and Ed Miliband from your side, and we would chat away. I kept saying, I kept saying it should be you. I kept saying, you know, why did they pick this uh, doofus when they should have had uh, the other Ed? But the thing which was funny was that we were having this conversation, and nobody up in the press gallery could hear what we were saying. And it always used to really wind them up. What were we talking about? So um, anyway, we will answer more of your questions in a moment. But first of all, we're going to take a quick break. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So welcome back. We've now got a question from Simon who asks, in your political careers, you were both responsible for a few marmalade dropping moments. But what was the most audacious political move you would have each have secretly liked to have made, but didn't or couldn't? George, when did you um, actually not drop the marmalade, even though you wanted to? Well, I'm not a massive marmalade fan, so I've not had marmalade dropping moments, literally. I'm, I, I'm, I'm visited, this is when you're reading the paper and you read something in the paper and you're so shocked, you literally drop the toast drops from your hand with the marmalade on it. I think that's what marmalade I like dropping. lime marmalade. You like lime marmalade? <laughs> I quite like marmite, actually. Uh, <laughs> the, um, well, you either like marmite or you don't. That was the kind of politician I was. Uh, yeah, so the question is, you know, were there dramatic moves? Um, and we've discussed on a previous show you know, my announcement on as Shadow Chancellor abolishing inheritance tax, which was a kind of marmalade dropping moment, I guess. The independence of the Bank of England was a marmalade dropping moment on your side. I was trying to think, is there something we really want to do? Something I really want to do, but David Cameron said no. And I'm not, I'm not you know, he may well have been right about this. I actually wanted to introduce a version of a mansion tax, which was two extra council tax bans for very expensive homes. Because at the moment, you know, the most expensive houses in London worth 20, 30, 40 million pounds paid the same council tax as much, much cheaper homes. And uh, I thought you could introduce two new bans for these super expensive houses and use the money to cut the rate of income tax, which at the time was 50% to 40%. And uh, David said, no, he said, you know, the Tory party has made a big point about not being in favour of a mansion tax. This can be portrayed as a mansion tax and cutting from 50 to 40 in a period of austerity is too much. We've got to get rid of the 50p rate, but let's settle at 45, which is where it stayed. And if anything, actually, Rishi Sunak's just put a whole load more people into the 45p rate with uh, the recent Jeremy Hunt budgets actually reduced the threshold at which you started paying the 45p rate. So that's the closest I have to a sort of thing that would have been a kind of dramatic unexpected maneuver i can think of um two from my time one from treasury one from education in the treasury we spent ages in the middle of the decade early in the decade 
trying to see if we could find a way to replace council tax because council tax had gone up a lot. It was very unfair, very clunky, massively unpopular. And we spent months working through to see whether you could just abolish council tax entirely and replace it with a tax which would work in a similar way and raise the same kind of revenue. And the only straightforward way to do it was through VAT. And would we abolish council tax and replace it with a rise in VAT? And in the end, even though the rise in VAT would have been fairer, um, we couldn't find a way to make it um, work presentationally, politically, in policy terms. The shift in the tax base from local to, to central it wasn't easy to stop it being a centralising move. So in the end, we didn't do it. But I think abolishing council tax and raising VAT would have been a marmalade dropping moment. Of course, you went on to raise VAT later on. And then my second one is that education, this had been ducked in Tomlinson. The introduction of diplomas wasn't working. And I wanted us just to announce that we were going to abolish A-levels and replace them with a baccalaureate or a diploma-style baccalaureate because A-levels were too narrow and didn't work for lots and lots of people who needed to combine academic and vocational learning as well. And um, in the end... But Zunak's done that. Well, I was going to say, Gordon Brown um, wouldn't go for it. And that tells you that sometimes, you know, marmalade-dropping moments can have their time, even if rather a long time after you wanted to drop the marmalade. So um, that was my second one, and I wasn't allowed to do it, but I wish I had, and I wish Britain did, and I hope that whoever is the next government does, because I think that would be an important step forward. Right, our next question comes from someone who's just written that big book on King Charles that has generated loads of headlines and, and revealed what's really been going on there it inside is. the palace. Charles yes, the, third, oh, the Inside Story. Robert Hardman. Yeah, but excellent. Robert is impeccable in the uh, sources he has in, in the royal family. But he has asked us both a question. Oh, good. So take it away. Hello, George. Hello, Ed. It's Robert Hardman here. Um, I'd love to ask both of you, not quite political currency, more royal currency, because that's more my patch. Um, but you were both central to one of the most important uh, stories in modern royal history. That was the tearing up of the civil list after 250 years of royal funding and the creation of the Sovereign Grant, um, which has set the monarchy on a completely different financial footing, uh, or so it would seem. Um, and I suspect they're probably quite grateful to you both, but I don't know. Um, How has it panned out? When I became Chancellor in 2010, I had not thought for a single minute, I think, about the royal finances as Shadow Chancellor. But I got a call from Alistair Darling, and he said to me, look, George, there's something you're probably not aware of, and I'm afraid what with the financial crisis, I just never got around to dealing with it. But the royal family is basically broke. And the system that was set up originally in 1760, the civil list system, whereby the king or the royal family the beginning of every reign gives away all their kind of royal lands to the state and uh, in return gets a kind of annual stipend from parliament. That system that had been running from 1760 had run out of road for complicated reasons to do with the way inflation had been calculated in the 1980s and 90s. Anyway, they, they'd basically been living off some proceeds from that that had uh, disappeared and now they needed a new system. So we either had to quite considerably increase the civil list or come up with a new plan 
And I came up with the sovereign grant, which we passed through Parliament with the support of the Labour Party. And we linked future payments for the royal family. This is for their official duties, not their private lives, to the way that the Crown Estate was doing, the Crown Estate of the royal lands managed by the government. And we thought it wasn't a bad proxy because, you know, when the economy was doing well, the probably the property company would be doing well. And when the economy was doing badly, the property company wouldn't be doing very badly. And there was a there was actually a cartoon on the day I introduced it of uh, the Queen and Prince Philip coming out of the underground station at Westminster, all dressed up in their robes saying, bloody Osborne. So we did persuade people it was a tough settlement for the royal family. But I have to say it ended up being pretty generous to the royal family and had to be adjusted later. I think you're downplaying the role of the, the opposition in this, you know, with support from the opposition. I mean, it was a bit more than that. Tell people what happened. Well, no, you tell me. You came to me and said uh, that you wanted to make this reform, but you didn't want it to be controversial. So we had meetings in your office in the House of Commons, and I think you showed me some Treasury briefing papers. And the view I took, which I think you probably anticipated, was that to take short-termism out of the rural settlement, and the civil list was like an annual wrangle, but also to do this in a in a non-party political way was really important. And I agree. And I think I asked some questions to you in private and to the civil service. But then when it came to, in the House of Commons, when you did the statement, I think you knew the questions I was going to ask you because we'd already discussed them. And so it was done in a consensual way. And I think that was really important because you don't want party politics to be drawn into the way in which we finance the the monarchy, because the monarchy shouldn't really be seen in a party political way. And we we avoided that. And I think actually at the time, the settlement was tough. In the first couple of years, it was actually slightly tougher than the old um, civil list. But you always anticipated it was rise over time. What we didn't know was the extent to which the development of offshore wind would deliver such a big windfall to the Crown Estates because they own all the land offshore where these wind farms are are built. And isn't that an important reason why Crown Estate money has gone up so much and therefore they're cut? The king owns all the land between high tide and low tide. And uh, a lot of these uh, offshore wind installations need infrastructure to get. So it's not actually where the wind farms usually are, it's but the cables and the Connectors. Anyway, uh, it was really interesting and it was very good working with you on it. And I completely agree with you that it was vital to do it by consensus. And it has provided stable funding for the royal family and it's had to be adjusted down, but we built in that mechanism in case the Crown Estate did better than we had expected. And it wouldn't surprise me if it was adjusted down again, because I think you know, yeah. the, the, the King has talked about a slim down monarchy and William has as well. And the rise in their revenues because of this 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 mechanism have been much bigger than they anticipated. So there is now a way consensually to get to a continuing fair settlement without it being a huge annual row. That is true. Maybe on another occasion, um, I used to have these audiences with the Queen, not as regularly as the Prime Minister, but uh, they were they were very interesting. And we did sometimes talk about money because the Chancellor Exchequer is also the treasurer of the royal household or one of them. So uh, anyway, thank you very much, Robert, for sending that in and um, good luck with the book. But we have one final question. And that question comes from Henry. My question is based on a potential aspiration of my own to one day become an MP. Given the immense personal pressure that a modern day political career can have both on your life and personal relationships with those closest to you, as well as recent revelations from the likes of rival podcaster Rory Stewart on the toxicity of the Westminster workplace 
and the appalling tragedy that beset my childhood MP from Southend, David Amos. With all that in mind, my question to you both is therefore, would you yourselves choose to become MPs today if you had your time again? Yeah, my answer to you, Henry, is very straightforward. I absolutely would choose to be an MP again. I love being an MP. I loved my time in politics. And uh, I always say to anyone thinking about a political career, you should definitely do it. And people are put off because of the kind of noise in politics and the media intrusion. And of course, these terrible, terrible recent tragedies of a couple of members of Parliament, Joe Cox and David Amos, being killed. So things have changed a bit and the security is much greater than it was, but it's still an enormously rewarding career. And you know, I see it. I've been here in, uh, over the last week in Davos. I was with David Cameron and he's enormously enjoying He's not an MP, but you know, he's enormously enjoying being back in the government. I have to say, I, um, I don't always say this, but I thought Gordon Brown had a very good answer when he was asked on Sky the other day whether he would do a Cameron-style comeback of me while I have you here not to ask you a couple of questions uh, with your uh, political oh, I'm a retired brain. politician. You know, well, I'm, I'm too old to be a British politician. Think, I'm I don't too, think you're ever a retired I'm politician. I'm too young to be an American politician. That's one of the questions. You know. <laughs> that's pretty funny from Gordon, I would say. No? Edge? Well, no, that's not a, and that's not one of his old jokes. That's a new joke, right? That's right. Gordon was always good at jokes. Without getting too TBGB about this, there was one moment when Tony Blair really upset me, actually, just recently. He did an interview where he was asked um, not about whether he would go back into politics, but whether he would advise his his kids to go into politics. And he said no. He was kind of very down on the state of current politics. And that upset me because I think in the end, you know, in, in democracies, unless you inspire the next generation of young people to go and be politicians, if the good guys don't do it, the bad guys take over. And so you need people who are willing to put themselves forward. And I really want young people to be supported to um, go into politics. And that's why, you know, even despite the pressure and the media and the toxicity of social media, we need to find ways in which we can show people that they should go into politics. It is undoubtedly the hardest thing I've ever done being in government, but also the most rewarding. And I think there's a side to politics which people don't always see. We talked about this when we were talking about the post office last week. I remember being a constituency MP and having a a letter from a family in my constituency, and they were foster parents. It was a very upset letter because they'd had two girls they'd been fostering, and they, they wanted to adopt the children after a number of years. And their request to adopt the children had been blocked. And it had been blocked because the children had originally come from another area about 100 miles away. And over there, the children's services people had said, no, they can't be permanently adopted that far away from there, you know, where they originally came from. And I thought, I can do something about this. And I, I intervened. I spoke to the director of children's services in Leeds. We then had a conversation with um, the children's services people in that other place. And as a consequence of that, about three weeks later, because I never met this family, I had a second letter, and in it, it was it was quite a few weeks later, uh, from the two girls to say, you know, thank you so much for what you did, because you've made our family whole, and you've given us a long-term future, and we can never put into words how much that means to us. And, you know, I never met them, and there was no press release. It's not something you celebrate in public, because it was about their private lives, but I, as an MP, managed to do something which was transformatory in their lives. And nobody else could have done that in quite the same way. That's what an MP 
Mm. It's able to do. And members of parliament do that in their constituencies all the time without any publicity. And if you want to have the chance to transform people's lives on the national stage as a chancellor, but also with a family like that in your constituency, go into politics and do the, the hard yards because because you could really make a difference. And that's why I, without hesitation, if I had my time again, would go back into politics. Well, that's a, a very uncynical answer and um, a very good one, in my view. So, um, yes, we would both be MPs again, and we loved it, even though it had its moments. <laughs> so I mean, we might have changed a few things along yeah. the way. Yes. I mean, you know, I might have been Chancellor. And maybe maybe one day we'll talk about how well, our advice on how to have a political career, how to get started in politics. We, anyway, we, that's a good idea. If, if someone wants to send in a question about that, we'd be happy to answer that. Anyway, that's all for today's episode of EMQs. Remember, we're going to be back this Thursday with Political Currency. That's our weekly podcast, of course. And uh, please do keep sending in your questions for EMQs. That's right. Please do keep sending us your voice notes via questions at politicalcurrency.co.uk. Also, if you hit follow on your podcast app, then you can get the latest episode directly into your feed or onto your phone. And we love getting your feedback by email, but you can also, on your podcast app on Apple or Spotify, you can actually give us a rating. You can put a comment there, give us feedback, and that actually helps other people to um, come to the podcast as well. So please do that. We'd love it. And we will see you on Thursday. See you then. Thanks for listening to Political Currency. This has been a Persephonica production. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.